0: Okay, awesome. We're good to go. Uh, Well, like I said, I am excited to be preaching this morning. Uh, We're going to be looking at uh, just a couple details in the Gospel of Luke. So if you have your Bibles with you this morning, whether that's uh, a paperback, whatever it looks like, or on your cell phone, turn with me to Luke chapter 2. We're going to be reading verses 1 to 20. Luke chapter 2, verses 1 to 20. Today, in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. Suddenly, a great company of heavenly hosts appeared with the angels, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest heaven, and on earth peace to those on whom his favor rests. The shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things they had heard and seen, which were just as they had been told. One of my favorite things about the Bible uh, is honestly just how weird and odd some of the details and stories are. Um, Now, if you've heard the stories of the Bible many, many times in your life, like I'm sure a few of us have, um, or if you've been around at Christmas time at all, the stories can become common or normal to us uh, and seem mundane, but it, many of the details, if we were to put our own lives into the story, it would be very weird. Um, so, like, what if God spoke to you clearly and said, I want you to build me a boat, and I want it to fit all the animals in the world on it, and then I'm gonna flood the earth? Like, we read the story of Noah and we think, yeah, like, yeah, that's what happened, but really, if God told you that, what would you do? Um, or, or why on earth does the Bible record the story of a man named Samson uh, who, who literally killed a thousand people with, it says, a donkey's jawbone? I don't know why that's significant or even written in the Bible, to be completely honest, but there's a purpose. And oftentimes the Christmas story can become mundane to us because we've heard it a thousand times before. It's easy to overlook some of the details and miss the importance or the significance of what, in in what we're going to be looking at today, Luke's gospel, of what he's trying to tell us, what he's trying to relay as the importance of the story. So if we read the book of Luke like an an historical document um, instead of an annual story, then a lot of the details are still pretty weird if we put ourselves into them. But it's all recorded for a reason— Uh, There's a reason we read of the angels speaking to the shepherds. There's a reason uh, we have all these contrasts between Augustus the Caesar and and Jesus. Uh, There's a reason that we have all these different references back to David in Luke's gospel. Uh, It all has purpose. And we're going to be looking at the significance of these three points uh, in Luke's account of Jesus' birth. Now, like I said, often... Throughout the Bible, we see God using seemingly odd or the mundane things in life for his purposes. So God spoke to Moses through a burning bush. Kind of weird. Uh, uh, he created a man named Samson again, whose physical strength was came, or came from the length of his hair, which that's what I'm trying to go for, but I'll get there eventually. Uh, uh, Jesus, he even healed a man by spitting on the ground and making mud and rubbing it in the guy's eyes. Like... If that doesn't stand out as odd, you've probably heard the story a few too many times, if you can hear it too many times. But God works in mysterious ways, and in our own lives, it can be easy to have expectations of what we want God to do instead of recognizing what he's already doing. Everyone in Jesus' day seemed to have an idea of who the Messiah would be and what kind of things he would do and how he would look. And when Jesus finally arrived, he surprised nearly everyone. And uh, one of the groups of people that I would say he surprised the most were the Pharisees. Uh, They expected the Messiah, the the promised king, to come in power to to overthrow the Roman nation that was conquering at the time. And they were so focused on what they expected God to do that they, they actually ended up missing what God was really doing. They overlooked Jesus. So what is God doing in your life? How have you seen God working this past week? Now, my encouragement is don't overlook the insignificant or the mundane things, or odd things even, that God might be using. Because if if I focus on how I expect Jesus to act instead of focusing truly on Jesus then I lose sight of what he's actually doing in my life and in the lives of those around me. So what what are your expectations of Jesus? Are you expecting for him to provide you financially when he's given you the step of obedience to first give to someone else? Are Are you expecting him to heal your mental illness, but he's called you to take a step towards finding counseling? Now, just like the Pharisees, when when we focus on what God, or what we expect God to do rather than actually focusing on God, we become angry and we miss what he's doing. Uh, Now, this morning I want to look at the three odd aspects that I mentioned earlier um, that we may miss in just a typical or quick reading of the Christmas story in Luke's Gospel, uh, and they're, they're significant and important for a good reason. So uh, again, today we're going to look at the importance of uh, Luke's com- uh, comparison of Augustus to Jesus. Uh, we're then going to look at um, uh, the references to David and the significance that that has. And I'm sure, again, you've probably heard that a few times already. Uh, and then we're going to move on to the, the beautiful importance of the message um, uh, of the angels proclaiming to the shepherds. Uh, So beginning with Caesar, now Augustus, we don't really have much information on him in the Bible per se. There's a few other references to him in uh, the book of Acts, but here in Luke, that's pretty much all we get and understand of Caesar Augustus. Uh, But from a lot of other historical documents, we understand that he was a very powerful leader. He uh, it's said that he laid the foundations of a nation that lasted for nearly 1,500 years until the fall of Constantinople. Now, apart from being a person who started a nation that would last uh, centuries, Augustus was also famous and attributed for bringing about a great peace during his reign. Now, Luke talks about Augustus very briefly. He just kind of throws in this mention of him. Uh, but he draws comparisons to Augustus and to Jesus that um, for us in our modern day reading, we kind of overlook because we don't know much of the historical context, but to Luke's readers in the day, it would have meant a great deal. So, we can understand uh, from Luke's comparisons that regardless of how powerful man may seem, how powerful the reigning government, the kings, the rulers might seem, that God is the one who's really still in control. Now, uh, Caesar was king of the Roman world at that time and uh, was attributed for bringing about the Pax Romana, it was called, the Roman Peace, which basically was just the fact that Rome ruled most of the known world and was under its control. And so, um, being all these different nations under uh, one ruler brought about a relative peace for everyone. So, here, Luke compares Caesar's worldly peace, the Pax Romana, the peace that he's attributed for bringing on the known world at that time, with the peace of Jesus in, in the angel's words, peace on earth to men on whom his favor rests. Now even though Caesar was praised for his great accomplishments, and even though he was called a god by the people literally, his achievements pale in comparison to what the king of the world can do. Because no worldly king could bring about the type of peace so lasting as the peace of the king of the world. In, in Jesus' day, uh, when, when Luke was writing his gospel, uh, it was common for the citizens to say glory to Caesar, to even call him Lord or Savior, uh, because of the great things that he had done. But instead, Luke doesn't record the praise towards Caesar. He, he records the heavenly hosts shouting, glory to God in the highest, Now, Caesar had neither the the power nor the significance to receive such a great chorus of praise. So, we have all this context here. We have um, a little bit more historical understanding uh, that we kind of miss because we don't really know much of that history. And again, if you've been through this sermon a thousand times before and you've heard this all, I apologize. But uh, there's still significance here. Uh, Now, last time I preached, I, I said... The story isn't about Joseph and Mary. The story isn't really about many of the characters described in Luke's gospel, except for one, really. It's about Jesus. When we look at the the information about Augustus, the information about David, the references to him and the shepherds, it's all great. But that's not who the story is about. All of these things point back towards Jesus. Now, in our modern day, we have these somewhat hard-to-see hints, uh, these references back to historical um, uh, information about Caesar being compared to God, all these different things. Um, but if, if we were to go back to that day and time, um, Luke's words would have had much more significant impact. They would have meant um, a lot more tangibly, or they would have meant a lot more to us in our tangible circumstance, because... Um, if you were caught saying that anyone apart from Caesar or Augustus was, God, or was lord uh, or king even, you could be put to death for that. But in this story, God shows himself greater than even the very real threats of death. God proves himself supreme. He, he sent a large number of heavenly hosts to announce Jesus' arrival, uh, an entrance greater than any king could command of this world. And these heavenly beings proclaim a message that Jesus is king and not Caesar. And there's nothing any worldly power can do to stop them from proclaiming their message. In the midst of the most precious gift ever given to mankind, we have a promise as well that there is nothing greater than Jesus. So, what does that mean for us in the 21st century? Because that's a lot of history and information, and that's all great. But how does it apply to our lives today? Because we live in a very... Uh, different political narrative, can we say, perhaps. Uh, we don't have the Roman nation conquering us. Uh, but in a similar way, we do experience a lot of the peace today in our society because um, of the government, the ruling authorities as well. So first we see that God is sovereign, that his purposes remain, that, that no worldly power can stand against his kingdom, that no, no power, no matter how great, can overcome the great good that God intends to do. And for first century readers of Luke's letter, the people it was intended to be sent to and read by, um, it was hope that God was Lord, even over the things that seemed uncontrollable, even over the things that seemed to Lord over them, to, to control them. God is greater than Caesar. God is, God is greater than any reigning authority, ruling, or government. And we have to trust that sometimes, despite what we can see in the moment, that God is in control and that he's working. It might not be what we expect, but we can trust that he is good there 's um, this beautiful line from c s lewis 's book The Chronicles of Narnia, where uh, the girl Lucy is asking about, asking her friends about one of the god characters of the story, aslan, who um, if you 're not familiar with the story, he appears in the form of a lion and um, Lucy's asking this other person if, if he's safe to be around. Even though he's God, he's still this terrifying lion. And the other character responds in the story and answers like this, who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, you know. And there's something beautiful about that too, that our expectations of what we want God to do sometimes in life don't pan out to... What reality is. Sometimes we want God to do something, and sometimes it might not seem like God is even working good or that He's even in control for that matter, but we're supposed to understand that God isn't someone who can be controlled. God isn't someone who can bend to do our will. Even the greatest powers in the world can't compare to the strength and sovereignty of God. Yes, we will face difficulties in this life and trials but we can hold to the promise that God is good and that he is in control over even the things that seem to us uncontrollable. So next in in Luke's account, we notice a lot of uh, references back to David. Uh, So first we have the reference of Joseph and Mary traveling to the birthplace of David, Bethlehem. Uh, Second, Luke records the uh, that Joseph belonged to the house and line of David. Uh, third, we see God's mesen- or message being proclaimed to a group of lowly shepherds, which was David's profession before he was put into uh, kingship. Uh, and fourth, uh, the message of the angels proclaimed to the shepherds is, today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. Now again, if you've heard the Christmas story, you probably recognize that um, there's Old Testament promises that are being fulfilled in saying that Jesus came from the line of David. So um, in 2 Samuel seven sixteen, uh, God promised this to David. He said, your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. And, and there's many other references in um, the Old Testament. 2 Chronicles 22, Psalm 89, Jeremiah 23, um, and the list goes on. I'm not going to read them all, don't worry. Uh, But right off the bat, we understand that Luke is trying to help us see that this is the fulfillment of a promise, that this is the Messiah, the promised king who was to come through the line of David. Uh, And and these many connections that he's referencing back to uh, should spark in our minds the promise that was given. Now, this is the fulfillment of a promise that was given about a thousand years before Jesus was Uh, came into this world, uh, was born. And last week, Dustin preached on the fact that we can trust and hold to God's promises, even if it is a long time in seeing their fulfillment. And and here we're reminded again of that wonderful fact that, that God has spoken purpose and promise that will never fail because they're not based in what man can do. They're based in what the Creator Himself can do. We hold to the promise that a Savior was sent into the world to identify with us, to walk with us, to, to die and be raised for us, and to relate to us where we are at. And as we heard in the Advent reading, God sent His Son to save us because of the great love that He has for us. We're meant, we're meant to recognize through these references that God holds to His promises. And we, we are meant to trust and hold to those same promises, the hope even when we can't see God's fulfillment happening, even when it seems like every piece of evidence points in the opposite direction, we're meant to hold to the promise that God is in control. Because Abraham, for instance, was given a promise that he would have an heir. At the age of 75, he was given this promise, and he didn't see the fulfillment of that promise until 25 years later. But, if you, if you know the story or are familiar with it, uh, he also went about trying to fulfill the promise in his own way. Uh, by sleeping with his wife's um, servant. And so instead of trusting God, he tried to bring about the promise his own way. And I'd say we do the same. We only make our own lives more difficult when we do this, though, because it costs us our peace. Now, that's a whole other sermon. I won't go there. But uh, last week, Dustin asked us, what promises are we waiting on from God? I'd encourage you to take some time and ponder that in your life. Think about that question. In what areas of your life are you waiting to see God's promises fulfilled? In what areas of your life are you waiting to see God break through? Are you waiting for, for God's promise of hope, of of peace, of joy, of love? He will come through. In in 2 Peter 3:9, it says that God is not slow in keeping his promises, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish but everyone to come to repentance. God's promises remain. Trust that he will be faithful, and he is faithful to fulfill them. It might not be in the timing you'd like, but it will be at the right time and the good time. Now last, I want to look at the uh, significance of the shepherds in uh, Luke's story here. Um, at Jesus' birth. Now, we know from history that shepherds uh, or shepherding was a very lowly job, uh, traditionally a lower-ranking role for uh, the least of the members of society. And David, for instance, uh, being the youngest of his family and not coming from a very, very wealthy family, um, he was the shepherd in his family. And so he was tasked with looking over the flocks of sheep. And so if it was You know, as I was reading through the story, it kind of hit me. I'm like, if if it was such a low-ranking job, then why did the angels proclaim a message to these people? Wouldn't it make more sense to proclaim, you know, this incredible message to like heralds, people who literally could go and spread the word a lot better than a bunch of shepherds um, or people in ruling authorities or powers, the uh, the politics, um, people that are able to get the word around a little more? But why did God send such a great proclamation to the lowest of people? Now, like I said at the beginning, um, God works in odd or mundane ways, and he works through the things that we would label as odd or mundane even. Now, all throughout the Bible, God chooses to use the, the lowest-ranking people, the, the most disobedient, the, the least equipped even, for his own purposes. Uh, David was a shepherd, the youngest in his family, but God made him a king. Gideon was a man of great fear, but God used him to lead a nation against their oppressors. Moses was a man afraid of public speaking, but God used him to speak to kings and to millions of people. Saul was a man who persecuted the church, but God used him to expand the church to places that had never existed. Peter was a simple fisherman, but God made him the foundation on which the entire church was built. Zacchaeus, was a greedy tax collector, but after encountering Jesus, he gave back four times more than he ever stole. Josiah was eight years old when he became king, but God helped him lead Israel in righteousness unlike any king before or after him, it says. I'm just wondering what God can do in your life that you deem insignificant. What can God do in the areas of your life that you think worthless because of the mistakes you've made? Now, our our weaknesses, whatever they might be, are not the things that hold us back from God working in our lives. They're the very things God wishes to use in order for us to understand that it's not us doing these things. It's God working through us. When we look back on the lives and stories of, of, of Gideon, of David, Moses, Zacchaeus, and Paul, I mean, we we recognize that it wasn't by their greatness. Guys, in fact, most of these people were murderers. But God worked through them. And it wasn't because of their greatness, by their their grander, sovereignty, or power. It was because of what God could do through them in their willingness to allow God to use their weaknesses and to redeem their mistakes. So what weakness of yours can God use for great good if you only trust Him with it? What What mistake in your own life can God redeem if you're willing to set that before him? Because no matter where you are or what you have done, you are not outside of God's ability to use you. So this week, I'd I'd encourage you, take some time to reflect on what God is doing at this point in your life. It's a difficult season for many, and as we face these various pressures, it can feel like we're going to be crushed under that weight. But... Remember, it's not about you being able to somehow figure out how to use your weaknesses for good. It's not about you trying to figure out how to cover over the past mistakes that you've made. Your role is to simply ask God for the help that you need and take steps in the right direction. God isn't asking you to solve all of your problems. He's saying, I'll solve them for you. He's asking you just to simply trust him with them. So as you reflect on where God has you, whether you want to take a few moments after the service today or throughout the week spend time to set aside, hold to the promise that God walks intimately with us, that he uses our weaknesses and redeems our mistakes. Our part is to simply trust him where he leads us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your goodness to us. We thank you that in everything that you are faithful to walk alongside us, and God, we thank you that you redeem even the darkest places of our lives, even the things we are most embarrassed, shamed, or guilty about, God. We thank you that you use those things for your good. I ask this week as we, as we celebrate the greatest gift that has ever been given, as we celebrate the hope, love, joy, and peace of this season, God, and as we celebrate your son's sacrifice for us, help us to keep our eyes set on you that we might not look to what our expectations are. Look to what we hope you might do. God, help us to hold to the promises, yes, but help us to trust where you were leading us. God, we ask for the eyes to see you this week. In your name, amen.